if you want to boil it down to one word, it's really caring. Because when you support people in the way that I'm talking about, you put them into a, you know, you put them into the stratosphere in terms of what they're capable of producing. You really are optimizing people's potential, which I think is one of the fundamental responsibilities of leadership. Rather than just say, here's your job, get it done, here's your paycheck and go home. It's like, how do I make this person become more and fulfill themselves? And when people get that, People just do unbelievable work. And so I always set the bar much higher. And this is the piece that many people don't want to, you know, that they want to just dismiss it and say hard is soft. But it's really the driver of human behavior. So the more you can do to affect hearts, the more you then can expect them to perform at even higher levels because that's inherently satisfying for people. Three, two, one. Welcome to the Mind for Life podcast. The Mind for Life podcast. Where your thinking can change your life. And now, here's your host, Jeff Bogazic. What is up, everybody? Welcome to the Mind for Life podcast. My name is Jeff Bogazic, and here we talk about how transforming your thinking can transform your life. And let me say this. If you are a leader of people, if you are a manager, if you are a business owner, or you have any aspirations of leading people in the future, you have to tune in today We have an incredible guest with us on the program. His name is Mark C. Crowley. Let me tell you a little bit about him. He's one of the most innovative leadership thinkers in business today. He is the author of the book, Lead from the Heart, Transformational Leadership for the 21st Century. And his mission is to fundamentally change how we lead people in the workplace. You are not going to want to miss it. Let me say this, if that word heart in the title of his book sounds like his management approach might be a little soft, I am confident our interview with Mark will prove just the opposite. His work is backed by breakthrough scientific research and over 20 years as a senior leader at one of the nation's largest financial institutions, and his insight turns traditional leadership theory on its head. So you're going to want to pay attention. Educators are already seeing the benefit of Mark's book and his thinking and what it represents for the future of leadership. His book right now is being taught in four U.S. universities, including one organizational leadership PhD program. And after hearing him today, you will see why that is. Mark is a regular contributor to Fast Company Magazine, and his two most recent leadership articles on LinkedIn have been read well over one million times. And I am so excited to share my chat with him today, and we're going to get to that in just a couple of seconds. But first, let me say a couple of things to you. I want to mention our sponsor for the program today. The sponsor is Bluehost. Bluehost, the leading web solution services provider. They were founded in 2003 and they continually innovate ways to deliver on their mission, which is to empower people just like you and me to harness the power of the web. If you are looking to start a podcast, host a blog, begin a website, 
please take a look at Bluehost. They do a great job. Their product is wonderful. Their technical support is outstanding. You can call them any hour of the day and they will walk you through any questions that you have. They are the host for mindforlife.org and I have been extremely pleased with the product. So if you're interested in any of that, take a look at our webpage, mindforlife.org, scroll down to the bottom and you will see a link to click on there where you can get hosting for $3.95 a month. Next, all of the show notes for this program will be at mindforlife.org slash 031. This is our 31st show, so you can click on over there afterwards and please make sure to stick around to the end of the program where I share my top takeaways from the time that we've had with Mark, but also you can look over there for all of the links from notes that I've taken on this program, which is the ways to connect with Mark and everything like that. So that will be located at mindforlife.org slash 031. Also, I'd like to mention that you can now become a patron of this podcast and help support it with your hard-earned money and kind generosity. For as little as $1 a month, you can contribute to help cover the cost of producing this program. Head on over to mindforlife.org. There's a little Become a Patron banner right at the top of the page. You can click on that and head over for less than $1 a month. Finally, I would hope that you have taken a look at our new feature, Five on Friday. I give you five solid minutes. Well, in some cases, it goes a little over. In some cases, maybe a little bit under. But I reflect on a particular topic that I think will be very inspirational to you, help you to think a little bit deeper about your life and about your reality and about your thinking. So if you didn't get to hear that, I want to encourage you to take a listen This past week, we talked about the attitude of commitment and how being committed is a key to your success in life. And right now, looking at iTunes, it has a huge popularity bar. So that means hopefully a lot of people have tuned in. If you haven't, please check it out. You can go to mindforlife.org or click on it right on your podcast app on iTunes. And finally, I know that last week I promised to bring you the second part of our interview with Oprah Winfrey's Super Soul 100 teacher, Gordana Biernot. I'm going to push that off for a couple of weeks because I've got a couple of great interviews that are coming up, but we will get to that. And so I just want to encourage you to be looking forward to that coming up in the next few weeks. All right. And without any further ado, let's get into the interview with Mark Crowley. All right, Mark, thank you so much for coming on the program today. It is so great, great, great to have you with us, and I appreciate you uh, coming all the way from San Diego, California. How's the weather out there? It's cloudy, unlike San Diego today. We have a cool, cloudy day, but it feels like we're getting a little taste of fall, which is great. So thanks for having me on, Jeff. Yes, we have the uh, the leaves changing here, so October is a beautiful month in Pittsburgh. Uh, tell, if you would, for our audience, a little bit about uh, how you came to be doing what you're doing now, and maybe explain that a little bit. I've read through your bio, we've read your bio on the program, but but just give us a little taste of how you came to be where you are now and what you're doing. So that's a really big question. And maybe you can kind of, you know, sort of reinsert some additional questions as we go through this. But sure. the, big, the big picture is that 
through the course of my career, I spent nearly 25 years in financial services, um, most recently two national level positions. I was the national sales manager for investment product sales for one of the largest financial institutions in the United States. And so in the course of my experience of managing people, it, it became increasingly more obvious. When I say increasingly more obvious, I was in my 40s when I had somebody say to me that you really manage people very, very differently compared to anyone I've ever worked with. And I started to really probe into that and understand what it was that I was doing differently because you just sort of, you think, well, I'm getting great success, so why do I need to compare it to others? And But as I started to really fundamentally understand that, I started to refine it. I started to say, okay, how can I make this better? How can I, and just for the anticipation of becoming a better leader and doing the business that I was doing. So the organization that, that I was working for um, ended up being acquired by another organization, and it was just like a complete miss. Uh, connection for me. This organization was really dark and I realized I'm, I'm not going to be able to stay here long term. I just, it wasn't going to be a fit for me. And so I thought, you know what, I'm going to use this time. So I negotiated an opportunity to, to, to leave the organization after about six months. And I thought I'm going to use this opportunity to write a book. What happened, Jeff, is in the process of me um, writing what became the second half of the book, that's all I ever had any intention of writing. Mm -hmm. and so as I was doing it, a friend of mine, somebody who was sort of paying attention to my process said, you know, you're gonna have to explain why all this works. And part of what I will get into if you want to dig into it is that I had a really, really um, uh, destructive upbringing and uh, starting with the death of my mother and being raised by a, a psychologically abusive alcoholic father and um, who later kicked me out of the house, you know, right after high school. And so a lot of disruption, a lot of instability there. And so he said, you know, that really played a role. This friend of mine said that played a role in influencing you to manage this way. And you need to tell that story. But you also have to explain to anybody who's reading this why they would need to adopt your process. It was a thought that I'd never had. I simply hadn't thought that I figured if I just lay this out, people are going to take me on my word. But I realized he was right. So I spent like 16, 17 more months going out and looking for evidence to validate what I already knew to be true. And the bottom line from all of this is that as I dug into this and started looking at how happy and, and engaged people were in their work, what were the causes, what 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 are the reasons why it, you know, job satisfaction has been on a steep and steady decline for the last 25, 30, 35 years, it started to add up and validate all the things that I had been doing are the solution. So. The direct answer to your question with that as a preamble is that once I put those pieces together and realized what I had already understood from my own intuitive approach to leading and then having all this validation that I'm here on this planet to tell people that we cannot continue to manage people the way we're managing it. It's completely flawed. It's completely destructive. And we continue to do it because we just pass it on from generation to generation and say squeezing people is the best way to get results. And it's just the opposite. It's right. really generosity and care that really drive performance. So um, maybe talk about that a little bit. How is it that you came to, because you said you 
kind of developed this intuition on how you led people, right? And you found that what you were doing and how you were managing them and how you were leading them was very successful. Uh, how is it that you came to maybe develop that understanding? Maybe you can talk a little bit about your past situation and what changed your thinking or how you thought about that and how you kind of progressed or evolved. Because typically, people that come from that type of a background usually have those maybe destructive tendencies within them as well. You know what I'm saying? So yes. what happened? How, how, did that, how did that translate maybe? So to answer the question directly, because it's a very insightful question, and I'm just sort of smiling inside, but, you know, validating your insight there, because um, I, I didn't understand that early on. But people have pointed that out to me, Jeff, that it's more likely, you know, in the big picture, if you were beaten, you're going to beat your kids. Right. Kind of thing. And so I think what happened to me, and I can't really explain it, but something deep inside of me made me pivot so that when I found a way to get through college. My father, you know, really truly wanted to destroy my human spirit. He wanted to make sure that I was going to be a failure in society. And he, he, he instilled that in me. He, he really did destroy my spirit. And, and yet he was, I was so convinced that if I didn't graduate from college, that he would have been right, that he would have proved me right. So after he kicked me out with no money and no support, I saw him just a few more times before he died 15 years later. I was really, truly struggling in myriad ways. But I got through college and I ended up actually doing very well in the last couple of years at a major, major university. And I saw the advantage that people had over me. They were much more courageous in what they were taking and they were they were doing things. They just they just had a, a belief in themselves right. that I didn't have because it wasn't instilled in me. And so I became acutely aware of all the deficiencies of what I felt, man, if I had had more thoughtful direction, more encouragement, more more safety, having a, a feeling that, you know, that I'm going to be OK at all times and having somebody who would teach me and keep me from making mistakes that I didn't need to make, all of those kinds of things. The pivot that I made was when I started managing people, I said, how much more of their human potential could I bring out if I gave them all the things that I always felt that I missed out on and would have thrived so much more in my life up until that point had I gotten them? Right. And as I said earlier, I didn't realize I had made this pivot. I did all of this unconsciously until my 40s. And then when somebody who had worked for me, very now a very, very close friend of mine, but somebody who had worked for me for about 15 years, she was the one who insightfully said, you know, you got to pay attention to what you're doing because you're getting phenomenal results, but you're doing it in a completely different way. And so what I ended up doing was refining that and really testing it and seeing how much better I could make it all so that I could draw out the greatest in people. And I just kept getting great results and I kept getting big promotions and every team I managed, regardless of their education, regardless of what job family they had, it didn't really matter. I was always getting phenomenal results because I was affecting them so deeply as human beings that people wanted to respond to me. They wanted to excel for me. They scaled mountains for me because they knew I cared about them. I knew 
what they were all about. I knew what they wanted to achieve. I was willing to share and to teach and to coach and help them become more. I made them feel safe. I really wanted to make sure that people never had any doubt about where they stood with me. So I would be very willing to say to somebody, you know what, Jeff, I hired you. I'm glad, you know, glad as can be that you work here for me. I don't know where I would be without you. A lot of leaders feel that that puts them in a vulnerable state and then people want to take advantage of it. What I found is that people are like, thank you for saying that. I'm working so hard for you. I just need to know that you see it. And, you, and when people get that, it goes to their hearts, which is really the center of my whole thesis, which is that feelings and emotions drive human behavior anyway. Right. How we make people feel is really what drives their performance. So um, your book is called Lead from the Heart, and it sounds to me like you're talking about just being um, authentic and real and investing in relationships with the people that work for you. Is that the secret? No. Um, so authentic and real are components of that, of course. You know, you, you can't fake what I'm talking about. Right. And, and let, let me hit something, you know, right up. The, right up. I, I've had a lot of people tell me, you know, you made a huge mistake by calling your book Lead from the Heart because it sounds like it's soft and weak and sentimental. And whoever would say Lead from the Heart clearly doesn't get business. Right. I, I just suppose that by the fact that my last job was managing self you know, fully commissioned stockbrokers who were money hungry and they responded to this. So I, I, I had that, you know, direct experience of saying, don't misjudge this. Right. But it, it really what it comes down to is recognize that, that I, I believe and there's science in the book that gets into this in a, I think in a very profound way, which shows that, you know, that the heart and the mind are connected and that when we're feeling supported, when we're feeling cared for, when we're feeling like we're growing, when we're feeling like somebody really deeply appreciates the work that we're doing and that we're doing meaningful work and making a difference, that that creates a communication between the heart and the mind that puts people into their optimal levels of performance. And so it's much more than just being authentic. It, if, if, if you want to boil it down to one word, it's really caring. Caring. And caring sounds like a really like, oh, man. Like, yeah. Too you know, touchy-feely. Yeah. yeah. But, but, you know, the thing is, if you ask people who, who used to work for me to use one word to describe Mark C. Crowley, it would not be heart. It would not be caring, although those were there. They would say he's the most demanding guy I ever worked for. Because when you support people in the way that I'm talking about, you put them into a, you know, you put them into the stratosphere in terms of what they're capable of producing. You really are optimizing people's potential, which I think is one of the fundamental responsibilities of leadership. Rather than just say, here's your job, get it done, here's your paycheck and go home. It's like, how do I make this person become more and fulfill themselves? And when people get that, People just do unbelievable work. And so I always set the bar much higher. And this is the piece that many people don't want to, you know, that they want to just dismiss it and say heart is soft. But it's really the driver of, of human behavior. So the more you can do to affect hearts, the more you then can expect them to perform at even higher levels because that's inherently satisfying for people. Who wants to do mediocre work? Who wants to get to the end of the year and find out that you're, you know, in fifth place? Right. And so you can set that bar much higher, but the only way you're going to get there is by doing all the things that I'm describing. Okay, so let's take it and try to make it a little bit practical for our listeners, because you're right when you say 
It's about caring. Everybody gets the idea that it's ah, caring, touchy. We're going to get into the emotional. How do you practically, as a leader, what are some practical things that you can do from a an authentic, real place? Not we're just going to do these fake things to make people think that I care about them. But what are some things that you can do that can communicate that to your team members and then in, and then encourage them and uplift them? So the first one I would say is you, you got to get to know your people. You, you, you can't manage people unless you know their story. And so, you know, I think we've had this sort of belief that we can manage all people the same way. You know, my way or the highway, you know, this is this is how I do things. And if you don't like it kind of a thing, it's it's either implied or it's expressed directly. And so what I'm saying is blow that up and get to know your people. And I'm not talking about Sunday night dinner or going out to beers with them. I'm saying find time on a regular basis to get to know what's going on in people's lives. And I'm talking about whatever people are willing to disclose. Right. So I've got an elderly parent at home or I've got kids in school. Sometimes people don't want to share. So it's not with the intention of prying. It's really to understand what are the challenges that people face and what are their ambitions and dreams? What are they really trying to get get out of work? So some people don't want to do anything more than what they're doing. One of the home at five o'clock. It's fine. I understand that. Some people want to be regional managers. They want your job. They want to be CEO. They want to learn new things. So. That then becomes the burden for the leader. And this is one of the reasons why people are, uh, some managers aren't willing to do this because it's an investment of time. Right. It's, uh, it's like, hey, if I can just tell you, Jeff, this is the job, go do it. That's a lot easier than before you go out and do it, Jeff, tell me a little bit about you, right? Yeah. So some people, you know, I don't want to get up to the people are messy. But when you make that investment and then the second part of that is you got to deliver on it. So if I can, if I know what your ambitions are, and I know certain things that you don't know. If I can teach you, if I can coach you, if I can mentor you, if I can give you opportunities to go learn that. Hey, Jeff, here's a class. Jeff, here's a week-long opportunity for you. I'm going to send you to this conference. Even if you don't do a conference, it's like I got this person over here who's been doing the job you want to do. She's been doing it excellently. I'm going to give you two hours a week. You figure out when that's going to be so you keep your work done and you go spend it with her. She's going to work with you and teach you that job. Are you happy? Are you thrilled? Are you growing? Are you learning? How do you feel about me in this equation, right? I'm teaching you, coaching you, giving you opportunities to grow, challenging you to do great work all along the same time. This is the big piece. And then the other component of this, which is um, everybody says, oh, we already know this. We already know it, but we don't practice it. Right. And it's, I call it institutionalizing recognition, Mm -hmm. which is where you – embody recognition in your day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month activities. And I'm not talking about sending people emails and going, hey, Jeff, great, great job. I'm talking about bringing the team together, talking about performance, and acknowledging anyone and everyone who met and exceeded your expectations during a period, maybe for a month, for example. And when people know that you will consistently recognize them this way when they know that perhaps, you know, once a month when you get to your whole team together um, and you can do this, you know, you, you can do this where people are remote, but if everybody is together, um, either physically or not, and you talk about performance and you will not make a mistake by missing anyone who did what you needed them to do, 
People will work extraordinarily hard to earn that recognition. They don't want to come into that meeting and not be the person that you talk about. Right. And so some, some managers, you know, I had a manager guy that was a very senior guy. Um, he was doing recognition and he looked at his watch and he goes, oh, man, this is taking too much long, we, too long. We got we to gotta move on. And he just like ended it and didn't realize what a colossal mistake. Yeah. And people don't want to spend the time because they're always saying, well, we got to get on to the next thing. And I'm saying you can't ask people to do any more for you until you've taken the time to fully acknowledge, thank and let people savor their victories. And when you do that, people know, hey, he really appreciates what we do. He knows that I missed the kids' Little League game. He knows I came in early. He knows I didn't go to the gym this night because I wanted to get this done for him. I wanted to meet those goals. It matters. This is what matters. And where people are disgusted and unhappy, either through job satisfaction or engagement, this is what they reflect on. Does my boss care about me? Doesn't even know me. Does, does he or she know when I come in or when I go home or what sacrifices I'm making? And it makes people bitter when they feel neglected that way. And right. this is a very human thing. Conversely, people will do amazing things because they're so grateful to have somebody they know is in their corner advocating for them while they're asking them to do great work. Right. It remi it's, uh, reminds me of uh, a principle John Maxwell in one of his books talked about when he said, you know, the, the, the level of position is actually the lowest level that you can lead from. And when you start to lead from relationships by investing in people, and when you start to lead by uh, helping them to grow – Right. It just it brings them onto your team. It brings them onto your side. You're making them better people while at the same time challenging them, holding them accountable at high levels. So it, I, I get the sense that's what you're talking about. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Uh, it's not charity. You know, it's it, it, people want to dismiss this and say, well, you know, we haven't got time to be developing people and so forth. And, you know, if you add up the number of hours people work, if you bring them together, you know, even once a week, it doesn't add up to more than a couple percentage of their their work month. Right. But these are this is what people are validating, whether or not they want to work for you, whether they want to put their heart into their work, which is universal language, whether or not they want to stay, you know, continuing to do this kind of work. And people are making these decisions on a constant basis. You know, you're walking into the movie theater and you're like, am I happy? You know, it's like it comes out at all the weird times. But if you're making those investments in people, they're like, yeah, I'm happy. I'm going to go in and enjoy the movie. I know it sort of sounds crazy, but it's just this instant thing where people go, you know what? I'm I, I can't continue to work for this guy. He doesn't appreciate me. He doesn't develop me. He doesn't coach me. And a lot of times what happens is we compete with the very people. This is like one of the huge complaints from people in, in the workplace is that they feel that they work for a boss who competes with them because they're threatened by it. Right. Why should I teach you anything, Jeff? You're just going to go use it against me or you're going to try to get my job or, you know, you're going to get all the recognition or you're going to get a bonus. And so I'm like, hey, I work really hard for this knowledge. Why should I accelerate your growth? And we need to take those kinds of people and extract them from leadership. Right. Because right. if you look at baseball, you look at football, you look at any of the great sports coaches, these aren't people that in the fourth quarter when the game's down, pull the quarterback out and say, I'm going in. Yeah. They, they bring the coach, the quarterback over and say, here's how we're going to win. Right. Here's what I need you to do. Right. 
That's coaching mentality is the big shift that we need to make in leadership. And the only way you're going to do that is to have people who care about the success, growth, well-being, human thriving of other people, right? So you can't be competing. If you've got a football coach or a baseball coach and you want that team to succeed, you can't have the players feeling like they're competing with the coach, right? Right. That's the mentality we need in business. Now, here's a it's a good question because I think that there are a lot of people that would say it's good to have a competitive environment. And within a competitive environment, maybe in a work, uh, in a work or organizational culture, right? That people would say that that competitive environment, uh, stimulates people to maybe reach higher or to win. And is that different than saying we want to be in a collaborative environment? We're working together as a team. Could you say? So- I, so if 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 I, I can't, I don't know if I could come up with a number right. offhand. It's a fantastic question. But what I would say is that on the teeter totter of collaboration and competition, that it's going to be leaning towards collaboration. Okay. Which some people go, oh, there he goes again. You know, this is that heart thing. But here's the thing: you had you had Microsoft. This was an environment where people, very few people, could win. Very people could be successful in the rating standpoint. This this impacted employee uh, bonuses, their stock options, and so forth. And so, by having an, a, a stack ranking against your peers, what 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 they ended up finding out was that people ended up deeply competing with one another. They actually even tried to sabotage one another. Boy, did you hear about Jeff? You know, that kind of a thing, so that they would end up being on the top. And so I believe in healthy competition, but if you create this sort of, you know, ruthless cutthroat kind of an, you know, top man succeeds and everybody else fails kind of environment, that's just inherently stupid. But we do it all the time. And what I found is particularly in, in, in having competition where people were, you know, competing for, for pay and for recognition and so forth was that if you could demonstrate to people that everyone can win. So if even if you win, I can still win. It's not if you're competing against me and that if I share ideas with you, if I help you, Jeff, that I probably inherently going to end up doing better and you're going to end up doing better because we're figuring out better ways of leveraging your experience and doing the same thing that I'm doing. Right. So I have found um, through my own direct experience, even with the stockbrokers who are, you know, the, the, the only way they get paid is if they do a trade. Um, and the, the common belief was leave them alone. Don't give them any coaching. Don't give them any attention. Just let them produce, produce, produce. And what they wanted was attention. They wanted training. They wanted coaching. They wanted recognition. And so if you're a guy who's been in the business for three years and there's a guy over here who's been doing it for 15 and he's killing it, wouldn't it be helpful to know what he's doing? You right? think, right? So, but so you've got to get the guy with 15 years of experience to feel comfortable to do that. And so the way you do that is to celebrate him by putting him on forums and saying, you know, we're so grateful to have one of our top guys who've been here 15 years helping everyone else. 
Who doesn't want to feel great? Yeah. They're in different markets. They're not competing against each other. But that gives that guy a sense of satisfaction that he's not going to get from just meeting with clients and doing business. Right. So we're human beings. We have broader needs than that. And so when you're thanking that person and celebrating that person and giving them a lot of recognition for being generous and helping everyone else, now you're sharing expertise that that guy took 15 years to get. And this guy with three years of experience doesn't need to put another 12 years in to get that's collaboration. Right. Um, you're talking, it, when you talk about this, it seems like as though you're talking in a very large, maybe a large, um, larger organization. How can this practically work for, say, a small business owner? What can a small business owner do uh, to put your principles into practice in his own business where maybe he only has three or four employees, how can he or she, you know, lead better as a small business owner? Well, this is not, you know, this isn't just something that's been, you know, that works in aerospace or works in healthcare or works in financial services. This is universal mm -hmm. because what we're really talking about is human beings. So in, in my experience in the smaller organizations, you actually have to double down on this. This even this is this is more noticeable when you don't do it. Right. So if you're going to emphasize if you've got six people and you create internal competition with those six people, what kind of a work environment have you created? Right. right? I just I just read yesterday Ryan Airlines, Great Britain. Um, they have decided that they want their flight attendants to compete for food sales. Now you have a captive audience, right? These people are sitting on an airplane, but you know, if you buy a couple extra bottles of gin or you know a couple extra beers, you know, I'm going to do better. Right. But what's the, what's the fundamental purpose of a flight attendant? It's safety. So if there's if if you're harnessing, you know, reinforcing, compete, 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 and then you get into a plane crash or you gotta rush everybody off, now all of a sudden the people you're working with, when you need to be arm in arm, you kind of look at them like, well, you know, you're my foe. And that's just it's so insane. And so why wouldn't you say on a small plane in an hour's worth of food distribution, let's the, the top team, you know, let's take the all the flight attendants and let them compete with flights that aren't even related to them. Right, you right, know? right. All flights going to London. Let's see who does the best. That's that's where you bring in your competition within the team. You want those people working together. Right. The offense doesn't fight the defense. The quarterback isn't taking snipes at the linebackers. We got to learn from that. You know, the more cohesive, the more people have one another's back. You go on vacation, for example, for a week, and I'm only one of six people. Well, if those five people aren't don't like me and don't understand what I do, then what happens to the customer? The customer goes, well, where's Mark? Well, he's on vacation. Is there anybody else who can help me? No. You yeah. Know, it's like, why would you want to create that kind of an environment? Of course I can help you because I'm going to go on vacation next month and Mark's going to help me. Right. So what do you need? That creates a much more successful, cohesive unit as far as I'm concerned. But that's not how we do it. Yeah. Would you say that that's the, one of the biggest uh, difficulties in organizational culture is the, the leadership styles uh, and the priorities of leaders, and why would why would you say that that has developed that way, and can that actually be changed? So, 
traditional leadership theory is pay people as little as possible and squeeze as much out of them as possible. And this is a hundred year old, more than a century old idea. And we got away with it when people needed to, you know, basically get a paycheck to meet their basic needs. But we've transcended to a point where people need much more in exchange for work than just pay. People can meet their basic needs now. They can put a roof over their heads. They can, they can, they, they have food consistently. Nobody's starving. Um, if you, if you're working and so people come to work and they have much higher expectations. And so it's no longer a question of can this change? It's a question of if you don't adapt, you're not going to survive. Right. And particularly now you've got a whole millennial group and Gen Z that's coming behind it. And they just, they're like, they looked at my generation and they said, you know, I'm not willing to put up with the kinds of sacrifices that you made. For what? You know, those companies just took advantage of you. They did layoffs, they cut your retirement, you know, they they did all sorts of things to manipulate, you know, you in the interest of, you know, improving their balance sheet and, and income statement. And they could see that. They watched their parents and the sacrifices that they made and that abuse. And they were like, I'm not going to work like this. I want more from work. I want to have a life. I want to have balance. I want to have well-being. And we didn't really care about those kinds of things. So the organizations that are really, truly thriving have said, we have to kind of reverse this. We can't be this squeeze and take kind of a mentality. I mean, you know, I'll even call it out. I mean, Walmart has been the paradigm for this for at least a generation um, where they they completely took advantage of the employees. They didn't give them health care. They're going into emergency rooms on the taxpayer's dime. And now they're trying to compete with Amazon for their own survival. And what did they decide to do? Raise salaries. They didn't do that to be generous. In fact, they're, they're still squeezing as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. But it's... It's an example of an organization that sees the future and realizes that if you're not meeting people's basic needs, they're not going to be loyal. They're not going to be committed. They're not going to give customers a great experience. Hey, where do I, where are the hoses? Oh, they're over there versus they take you to it. How much are you engaged? Pay isn't the only component here, but there's so much more that can be done to help people feel really great about their experience. And there are companies like Google, like SaaS, um, like, um, um, well, many others, frankly, that have already decided that they're going to be a much more human. And human, if you ask, the, you know, if you say to somebody, "What's the most human organ there is?" Point to the most human organ in your body. Universally, we go to the heart. Right, right, right. So science, it's not. There's nothing. It's just nothing soft. I just kind of have to point this out. This is the way to get people to perform. Yeah. Um. Great stuff, man. I really like it. Let me ask you a question. I'm going to get a little more personal. Uh, what would you, and I, I asked this, we pretty much asked this to all of our guests. What would you say is your definition of success in what you're doing? Um, in, in terms of what I'm doing today? Yeah. Or I, maybe overall life, maybe make it a metaphysical question or whatever. How do you define if you, um, Mark Crowley, are successful? That's you know it's 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 a very provocative question, and I think for me deep down, you know, I, I learned that um, I don't remember the financial results that we got, you know, in any one month. We hit our goals or we set records, and I, what what matters to me is that there are people in my lives who used to work for me who would still scale mountains for me today, even though there's no vested interest in it. It's just that they care about me for because of how I cared about them. 
And that's much more satisfying to me than knowing that I hit all the financial numbers and don't have anybody in my court when, you know what I mean? Right, so right. making, make influencing people in their lives and helping people become more successful and become sort of actualized, if you will, fulfill right. their potential I, is a gift that is probably the most satisfying thing that I can do. But in terms of just convincing people to lead from the heart, you know, I, I had an opportunity to not put that word heart in there and uh, was was strongly advised that I would fail if I did. And I've taken a lot of punches in the stomach, which is why I spend more time, you know, with you just sort of making sure people understand that they better take a good hard look at this. But when we get to a point where people are saying lead from the heart, of course, then I think that my job as the Pied Piper for this will have been worth it. Yeah. So that's sort of my secret ambition is to, I really truly want to change the world in the sense that, um, and it's not just all heart, but if you go to the heart and say that, you might say, well, what's going to happen to this company? What's going to happen to their loyalty when you start laying people off? And what's going to happen to the people who stay? And what are they going to feel? They're going to feel like, well, anytime you get into financial difficulty, I'm going to be next. You've killed loyalty and engagement for a whole organization. So maybe that's not the best decision. So it's this mind and heart, that's really what I'm trying to bring in. And so if we got to a point where, you know, I just got in one parade, I'd probably feel pretty satisfied. <laughs> you know, we're throwing you a parade, Mark. You were right. Right. Well, tell, uh, tell our, I, we're, I don't want to take too much of your time. It's getting, uh, it's getting a little bit lengthy here, but it's all been great stuff. And I think it's so necessary especially, as you said, for a younger generation that are coming up that aren't going to put up with it, right? They are not going to put up with it. So how does a leader adapt and change? So it's just a, it's such a great message and a great word. Uh, tell a little bit about your book, about where our listeners can uh, acquire that, and a little bit about where they can connect with you online, if you would, please. Okay, so the first thing I'll tell you is the book is called Leaf from the Heart, Transformational Leadership for the 21st Century. Go to Amazon. It's the cheapest, most expedient way to buy the book. Um, but interestingly, Jeff, it's being taught now in four United States universities. Wow. And, and I interrelate with students at all of them. One, of the, one is an organizational leadership PhD program. And many of them are entrepreneurship or leadership oriented. And I either go and speak to these students or I interrelate inter with them online. I read their papers. I'm really involved with this. And I've never had, uh, to this date, I've not had a student come back and say, oh, I totally disagree with this. You yeah. know, they're so on board and saying, man, if we could get people to manage this way. So that's another hint for the guy who's sort of resistant and saying, well, you know, it's going to be hard for me to change old stripes kind of a thing. The generation that's coming in and coming to work for you that's already there now, they see this and they embrace it and there's no resistance to it at all. Um, but in terms of, of connecting with me, I'm Mark C. Crowley on LinkedIn. I'm at Mark C. Crowley on Twitter. I have a lead from the heart page on Facebook. So if Mark, just remember the C, it's Mark C. Crowley. MarkCCrowley.com at Mark C. Crowley. And we'll put all the links to all of this in the show notes at Mark C. Crowley on Twitter and then on LinkedIn. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Mark, I've had a great time talking to you. 
Thank you so much. I've been having a great time as well. I've Wonderful a- questions. Pretty impressed. Yeah, I've uh, appreciated having you on the program, and uh, I hope that we will connect again in the future at some time. I'd love it. Excellent. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Mark Crowley and what an incredible interview it was. And Mark shared some incredible insight. And I want to give you my top takeaways from my time together with Mark. Number one, Mark said, get to know your people. People want to know that you care about them that they're not cogs in a machine. In the era of bossing people around without considering their humanity is over, people won't put up with it. So to lead and to be effective as a leader, you have to invest in your people. You need to get to know them because it's about the relationship. As we mentioned in the podcast, position is the lowest level you can lead from. You need to be able to lead from relationship because people don't trust you unless they have a relationship with you. How can they trust you if you don't know them or you don't know anything about them? So as a leader, it's about building a relationship. I'm not talking about some touchy-feely type of relationship, but one of authenticity, one of mutual respect. This is the new face of leadership, good human-centered leadership comes through relationships. So get to know your people. And the second thing goes along with it. Relationship comes when people know that you care about them. It's the old adage, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. When you care for people, when you're interested in investing in their lives, when you add value to them, and think about them as people and not just objects that you manage, it makes a difference in how they respond to you. Caring doesn't mean excusing a lack of effort. It doesn't mean excusing failure. It means holding people accountable for their work. It means challenging them to meet the high demands that you set. But it's also about how you speak to them and how you treat them and how you help them to become who they want to become. When you care about someone, you want to lift them up. When you lift them up, you lift up the organization. So consider leading from relationships and investing time into the people that you lead. And let me just say this. This isn't just about leadership and people management. This is about how you treat other people around you to build relationships with others, to invest in them, to give them value. Uh, That's just basic people skills. And if you can learn to implement that, I promise you, you will have a better life. So I hope this podcast has been informative and that you got a lot out of the interview with Mark. Remember, the show notes for this are at mindforlife.org slash 031. You can leave comments or suggestions right there on that webpage. Remember also to subscribe on iTunes and leave a review if you would. And if you found this informative and you know of someone that would benefit, please share it with them on social media. Thank you again so much for listening to this program. And we'll talk to you next time. (laughs) 